Okay, everybody, welcome back to Talk of the Now podcast. And again, we're doing a theology edition here today. And I've got uh, Mr. Alan Johnson, Reverend Alan Johnson, back. Alan, how are you today? I am doing well, thanks. Good to be back with you. Good, good. Um, the uh, We just went through Christmas time. And um, Christmas time, we won't talk about Christmas, other than did you have a good Christmas, I guess. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> But Christmas being the central theme, and something that I observed over the um, holiday is that um, our, our subject today is going to be God, the subject of God, which Good is subject. a vast <laughs> a vast subject that could take probably um, 150 um, episodes. But I'm just going to try to do a 100,000 overhead view, maybe <laughs> foot overview. But uh, the um, thing that I noticed during Christmas time was how the concept of God is somewhat lost, which, I mean, this is sort of an old hat, I guess, nowadays for people to talk about this, how the subject of God is lost in Christmas itself with the presents, the celebrations, the, the lights, the cameras, you know, just the fact that we're celebrating a simple manger birth of Jesus Christ, who um, for us Christians is our Lord and Savior, um, but not only that, it's sort of, um, it, it points back to God. It points back to God coming down in human form in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, um, to save people from their sins, his chosen people from their sins. Um, and I think that, uh, oftentimes, um, it gets overlooked even among us Christians sometimes with all the pomp and circumstance of, um, Christmas, so that's sort of my, I guess, opening diatribe about that. But uh, would you would you somewhat agree with that in a lot of ways? Well, I, I, I do agree with it. And Christmas is a, a profoundly religious holiday, um, although also a cultural event and holiday as it's developed. And I, I enjoy both. I enjoy kind of just the culture, well, all the all the trappings that go along with that. But certainly at the heart of it, uh, the celebration of, the acknowledgement of, the, the birth of Christ, and all that goes with that, uh, the incarnation of God, and the reason Jesus came into the world to begin with, I mean, we, we tend to lose sight of that with all of the, in a way, the cuteness of Christmas or the sentiment, you know, the baby in the manger, and Mary, this young mother, and the angels and the, even the wise men, although there's a pretty dark note with that, as they have to go back a different way because Herod is trying to get the wise men to do his dirty work for him and find the baby so he can go kill baby Jesus. So there's definitely a dark side even to the birth. But uh, as I preached in our Christmas Eve service, and for 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, uh, where John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus came into this world in the most amazing way on a most amazing mission, and that is the redemption of his people. Uh, the, 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 sha the, the shadow of the cross lies across the manger. Jesus was born to die. Which is ironic in some ways, because um, if there was ever a person that was born into this world that did not deserve to die it was jesus <laughs> of course yeah um, uh, what was that he was sinless the wages yeah. of sin is death and right if you have sin, 
there is no death. Yeah. Um, I, um, well, I think that's a great opening to um, the broader picture of God. Um, and I do have a reference material today for us to kind of go through to sort of maybe help guide us over the next 30 minutes or so as we mm-hmm. go through this, because I don't want to keep it too long because this is certainly a subject we can come back and hammer down more um, of these topics with it. Um, one of my favorite books that I've not read in a long time, but read back in college, I think was A.W. Pink's Attributes of God. Um, have you yes. read that? Yes. Great book. And I think we, we taught it in a Sunday school class here some years ago. It's been a while, but I do remember ah. being a, a, one of the classes. Yeah. Okay. So before I get into that, let me just talk about this. Um, I guess, and I want to look at it as well, not just from our own theological you know, both of us, especially you, are educated people in theology. A lot of our listeners might be educated in theology, but also want to go down to the level of somebody that, you know, their view of God is just religion, and I've heard there is a God, you know. Um, So looking at it from, I guess, a biblical standpoint, um, where do we start with God, the entire concept of the Judeo-Christian you know, entity, I guess you will, of God, where, where that becomes a concept, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, um, I remember the late R.C. Sproul, theologian and teacher, talking about as soon as you concede the existence of anything, you concede the existence of God. And his point in saying that was, uh, if I might quote Maria von Trapp from The Sound of Music and a song she sang, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. And that was the, um, not only the most profound lyric in that whole musical, but um, was the point that Dr. Sproul was making, that, that you know, the universe can't just pop into being out of nothing. Well, if there ever was only nothing, there would forever be only nothing. And so... Uh, you know, some people say the universe just has always existed. Well, I don't see that that's any easier to swallow than to say that God has always existed and he created the universe out of nothing. Um, for me, as, as a Christian, my understanding of God comes from the Bible. We would say that the Bible is a book that certainly has its human elements, human authors, and yet it was also God working through those different people to write what he wanted written to reveal himself to us. And we could all just sit around and say, well, I'd like to think of God as this, or I'd like to think of God as that. But the question is, who is God really? And we don't have to wonder. He's revealed himself to us in the Bible. And especially even in the Bible, he has revealed himself to us in Jesus and actually taking on human flesh and living among us. One of his disciples, a guy named Philip, uh, one time, this is in John 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, Philip said to Jesus, uh, Jesus, just show us the Father. You know, that'll be enough for us. Just show us what God is like. And, and Jesus was kind of taken aback. And he said, Philip, have I been with you this long and you still don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So point Jesus is making is not that he is the Father but that he came to reveal the Father, to reveal God. And so if you want to know who God is and what he's really like, study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, the biblical books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you have a pretty good idea who God is, both in his his, uh, views of sin, and Jesus 
you know, was, was stern in his words against sin and no more so than self-righteousness, uh, but also his gentleness with the repentant sinner or the person who was hurting or suffering or came to Jesus for cleansing or healing and to see Jesus' compassion. That's the compassion of God. So I would say to know who God is, we have to start with the Bible. Otherwise, we, we're just making it up. Mm-hmm. And now the Bible does tell us, from my understanding, that um, evidence of God, which you sort of touched on that, ev- evidence of God is sort of laid on our conscience in a way and within nature itself. Is that correct? Am I putting that right? Yes. And uh, I would say, you know, you look at creation and the Bible says that Psalm 19, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the, the, the skies show forth, forth his handiwork. Uh, the Psalms speak of creation and other places in scripture revealing God, but even inwardly. And Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter two, where he talks about those who are not Jews, who don't have the law of God, and yet do by nature the things commanded in the law, such things as not murdering or such things as not committing adultery. Mm. And what Paul was getting at, what the apostle was getting at there is we have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now, we may violate that. Uh, we may violate it so much that we just become dead to it. We, 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 we uh, sear our consciences or you know, cauterize them. They're no longer feeling. They no longer work. But the reality is that doesn't take away from the fact that most people have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong simply by fact that we are creatures made in the image of God. And so that too points to uh, a a maker. Uh, We also should say that if God does not exist, then there is no such thing as right and wrong. There's only preference Mm. and there's the power to get your preference uh, if there is no God, we might not like what Adolf Hitler did to all those Jews and putting them in the gas chamber, but that would be our preference. His preference was to kill them and get rid of them. And if there is no God, who's to say he was wrong? That was his preference. And at least for a while, he had the power to enforce it. Uh, but because there is a God, we can come back and say, no, there is an absolute transcendent standard that says, no, Hitler was wrong. What he did was horrible. And uh, so apart from God, we have no basis even for the words right and wrong, but we use those words and we generally mean by them more than merely the consensus of society, which can change. Uh, There has to be a transcendent standard. So Mm. both uh, the creation itself bearing witness to the power and creativity and beauty of God, our inner conscience bearing uh, tribute to the sense that there is right and wrong and um, our, our, our sense of justice, fair play, all of those have to have an external standard or it all becomes meaningless and just preference. Well, you know, speaking of that, I can't speak for atheists because I'm not one or an agnostic because I'm not one. <laughs> Even as a non-believer growing up, I just sort of um, probably would have ascribed to being a Christian, though it might not have been one. But let's address what Again, I don't want to speak for an atheist because I'm not one, so I don't know what their official position might be. But I, I think a lot I've heard from a lot of people that are maybe agnostics or believe, yeah, there could be a higher power. There probably is. Or even somebody says, no, no God whatsoever. There Usually I hear the argument of the reason I'm not like Hitler or my cousins that are whatever atheists is it's it, get me. No, don't if I'm wrong in this, let me know. But it seems like they're. Um, 
I guess, logic is that it's all about societal or self-preservation as to why, excuse me, they continue to do good things or why they have good things, you know, in their heart as so to speak, other than the fact that they think that man, I guess is basically good, but that that's why they would do, that's why they don't become Hitler or, or they don't do bad things, so to speak is because um, it's about self-preservation, I guess. Um, but it, I guess, so the question might be at the end, if you follow that logic down its rightful path, would you pretty, would it pretty much not hold water? at the end of the day i yeah i if i understand what you're asking um be asking right <laughs> it, well and, and simply because god has made the world as it is mm. there's an element of truth to that uh generally i'm going to do better to treat my neighbor kindly than to treat him harshly and that kind of thing tends to come around um if that's what you're saying i mean there is there is an element of truth to what they're saying but even to say that is to make a, a rather radical statement about the nature of reality. Um, as, as coming from a biblical point of view, I would argue that there's not only God's saving grace, saving people who he, he draws to faith in Christ, but there's this common grace that just protects us in this fallen world from destroying each other. Uh, we are made in the image of God. And so we do have a, that innate sense of treating one another well. And even a non-Christian can, can do that and often recognizes it's in his own best interest to, to treat people fairly, to treat them well, uh, lest he end up in jail or be treated badly himself. And of course, we have terms like sociopath or psychopath for people who uh, who so deviate from those sense uh, that sense of what is proper human functioning that they seem incapable of, of having empathy for people. But you don't have to be a Christian to have that. We are made in the image of God and, and we sense that somewhat innately. Uh, by the way, to say that you know we, we, we gin up some idea of God as a way as a crutch or a way of trying to create meaning, uh, the reality is for the Christian, and certainly this is true throughout history and in many parts of the world today, to become a Christian makes your life harder, not easier. It makes, it can make things. Non-preservation, not preservation in some cases. By the way, I'd also, Gene, want to say that, um, you know, in becoming a Christian, reason plays a part. God created reason, uh, and we, we think through things. Uh, I sometimes think, okay, what if I weren't a Christian? What would I be? And I think about Darwinism and, and the, 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 um, the evidence problems, the lack of fossil, fossil support that Darwin was confident would be discovered, which hasn't. Even the mathematical improbability, you know, I, I think, do I have enough faith to be a, a Darwinian atheist? Uh, the answer is no. But back to reason. Uh, reason is part of who we are. It's part of how we reflect the image of God. But it's also true that in our fallenness, we don't seek God. We seek ourselves. Uh, when, when Peter, the apostle Peter, confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he said, who do you say that I am? He said to his disciples, and Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember the first thing Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. In other words, you didn't figure that out on your own, but the Father has revealed that to you. And that's true for any Christian, that we come to savingly trust in Jesus and understand him to be the Savior of sinners, the Messiah. That is a gift of God's grace for every Christian and for any Christian, for anybody to come to faith in Christ. It's because God has enabled them to, to see that. So there is that supernatural element to it, but, but it's also not a leap in the dark. Uh, there's a lot of support for Jesus being who he claimed to be through his life and including his resurrection from the dead. Hmm. I believe we talked about that maybe in a different episode, some of the things there. Um, so it's not contra reason to believe in Jesus, but ultimately to trust in him for salvation is an act of God's grace. It's a supernatural thing, a gift of the father. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Um, to the listener, there was a little bit of inter- interference of this. I'll have to go back, maybe look at the recording, but it was, I might've cut you off in one spot, but I think we got the gist of what you said before that. Um, the, uh, okay, so let's let's hit this one topic that we always hear about. Um, we won't go too deep into it, but I guess if you could give sort of a cliff notes, um, the one thing you'll always hear in media or secularism, so forth. Well, if there is such a, if there is a God, and he's an all-powerful, all-good God. Why is there evil in the world? You do hear that a lot, and it's an interesting question uh, because the word evil implies a standard. It kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier with Hitler. Uh, if there is no God, how can you say anything is evil? As I said, there's there's simply preference. So to, to describe something or label something as evil requires some standard. We say, well, maybe there's just a human consensus. Hmm. That consensus can change. You know, there were people in Nazi Germany who opposed Hitler, but there were awful lot of people who seemed to think, and even on this side of the Atlantic, especially early on, who sort of were in sympathy with Hitler and what he was doing. And the, the horrors of it all later came out. A lot of people who may initially have been sympathetic toward him were shocked, but uh, some weren't. Um, so, to, to, to label anything or describe anything as evil requires a, a transcendent standard, namely God, who himself defines certain things as good and thereby other things as evil. So that would be the first thing I would say was, you know, people say, if there's some, how can there be a God when there's so much evil? I would simply flip it and say, how can there be evil without God? Now, understanding a biblical take on evil. God created this world. He declares it over and over. It was good. It was good. It was very good. Genesis 1 and 2. But then, of course, Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God, rebelled, and that not only affected them, it affected all of creation. You go from chapter 3, where they sinned against God, eating the forbidden fruit, to chapter 4, where one of their sons murders their other son. That's evil. And it happened that quickly. Sin took root and spread and affected things that quickly that from one biblical chapter to the next, I I don't know how long that was, but chapter three to chapter four, you have one of their sons killing their other son. And what what a heartbreak and what a heartache they must have felt over that. But of course, God either came and, and, and dealt with them in their sin and promised that the, a descendant of the woman would crush the head of serp- the serpent, uh, the, the descendant of the serpent, Satan. And uh, so, you know, the question is, why doesn't God do something? Uh, sometimes say he already has. 
He sent his own son into this world. He became incarnate and he died on the cross to redeem his people, to redeem this creation. And uh, Jesus says in Revelation, I am making all things new. God has done something. And so we're waiting on him. Of course, we work to, to, to deal with evil in the world, both in terms of relieving human suffering and in terms of bringing justice to bear where, where evil has been done, both as believers and as a society by God's common grace. But uh, yeah, it is, it's true, especially for the person suffering great pain or some great injustice or wrong done to them to say, where was God? You know, Elie Wiesel's book, Night, deals with that, with the Holocaust. I read that in college. It's a profound book, and he's dealing with those kinds of questions. They're very existential. And it's one thing to talk about it in an abstract uh, kind of academic way. But when it's somebody who has suffered something grievous, uh, the murder of a family member, or uh, a debilitating disease, or, or genocide, you know, um, that is a heavy question, and I don't mean to minimize it, but to ask the question itself seems to answer it in the sense that if there is evil, then there has to be a standard by which it's defined, namely God, who himself has said that is evil. And Jesus himself suffered evil in this world. Now, he, was, he was sent to the cross after a, a joke of a trial crucified an innocent man, uh, in fact, the only truly sinless, innocent human being who ever lived and died. And so Jesus knows what it is to suffer rejection, to suffer wrong, to suffer injustice. So to me, this might be a question, I don't know if a new believer or somebody that doesn't would say they're not religious would ask, but I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the only answer to this is it was just it was just in a God's plan that we don't understand the, everything you just talked about mm -hmm. God, uh, creating the world, creating man, creating the heavens and the earth, animals, <clears throat> man, and woman, and then the fall happens. Okay. Somebody might step back and say, well, God could have allowed it to be wired into man to not sin at all. And it just wouldn't have happened. So I guess a question somebody might say is why did he even allow that to happen? That is a good question, and uh, because it went the way it went uh, with Genesis, uh, we don't know for sure, but you look, there was also not only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life, and when Adam and Eve were banished, they were prohibited from going near the tree of life, and then the tree of life later occurs at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, mm. come full circle. But uh, it seems that the, the thought was that uh, had they passed a probationary period, had they passed a test, they would have been allowed to eat of the tree of life and confirmed in that, uh, in that innocent state. But of course, that's, that's not what happened. Uh, and, and the fall was not, uh, was not a surprise to God. In fact, I'm always struck when God encounters Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3, how calm he is. There doesn't seem to be anger or surprise. He asks them questions. He gets them to confess what they did. I guess one of the, you know, without, uh, it's kind of what we're trying to do is get into the mind of God. Right. But one thing that came out of the fall with all of the horror, all of the misery, all the sin that has fallen from it was, was God's showing his immense love and his grace in delivering us 
from our own sin and its effects Mm -hmm. by himself in the second person of the Trinity coming into the world to redeem us. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, they would never have seen that sacrificial love of God that he gave up himself for the redemption of his people. Mm. Now, that in itself is a fantastic thing, and it undoes all the misery and all the effects of sin for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him. Um, that's about as far as I would go to venture on the why question, right. why, why he didn't prevent the fall, why he allowed that to happen. By the way, he decreed it from before the creation of the world. And in fact, first Peter, Peter talks about Jesus, who was foreknown as the Redeemer before the creation of the world. Uh, Revelation speaks of the lamb slain from before the creation of the world. So that was God's plan. And in Ephesians 1, God chose us believers in Christ before the creation of the world. Mm-hmm. So that was God's plan all along, although that doesn't excuse Adam and Eve for what they did or you and me when we sin against God. Um, but he was able to show his great love and grace and mercy through our salvation, which I guess would not have been seen, at least not in that way, had Adam and Eve never sinned. I guess um, one of the ways that I look at it, which I I really liked, is um, another um, Atlanta um, pastor, Randy Pope, I heard him say a while back that um, a lot of times, the deeper you get into Christianity and the deeper you get into looking in the Bible and just a lot of things, you will come up with a lot of whys that are not answerable. And um, I think one way it was illustrated is that if you look, if you took a circle and basically imagine that in within that circle is all the knowledge of man um, can possibly know. And then outside of that circle, you know, that just goes infinity in all directions would be the knowledge of God. There are certain things that are just out there that we're, we don't have that um, permission or privilege to know or understand. Right. Yeah. And, and that's true. And those are those are interesting questions to think about. And they're, they're fun to ponder. But there's a danger there as well. Mm. Uh, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. It's fun that's to great. think about the, the difficult questions like that. But we want to make sure we don't fall into the danger of becoming so focused on that that we don't focus on the, all the things that God has revealed to us that we need to know and believe and embrace and follow and, and, and not make excuses or not just be distracted by all of the why questions or what if questions, mm-hmm. you know, or how questions. Uh, sometimes the Bible answers those kinds of things for us. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But we need to make sure we don't fall into the, the trap of, of being so distracted by those things or just being so focused, willfully focused on those things that we never quite get around to what God, all the things God has revealed for mm. us for life in Christ Jesus. You know, as a, as a why person, um, that can be hard for me to swallow at times because a lot of times I'll look at something and I'll think to myself, well, why not this? Or why not, you know, just like a, a kid, I guess sometimes, but <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong on this quote, but I think that it was maybe um, John Calvin said that the Bible is basically God's baby talk for humans or something of that nature. <laughs> yes. I think he said that and Luther. Uh, yeah. The idea that God is lisping to us his baby talk to us in, yeah. in scriptures, which by the way, though, is the only way we know God. We don't know God in and of himself. We don't know him as he knows himself. We know him as he has revealed himself mm. to us. 
in the Bible. We can't get direct access to God, but God has revealed himself and what we need to know for salvation, for life, for godly life in this world, yeah. in the scriptures. And the Bible's a thick book. He's revealed a lot. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's some deep stuff to think about, <laughs> but, uh, the, um, wait, let me, let me address this then. Um, someone that's a new believer, they probably get a little confused by the Trinity and they're like, okay, God, Jesus, Holy spirit. Okay. When I'm praying, am I praying to God? Am I praying about God? Am I praying to God? When I pray, should I pray to Jesus that I get, you know, uh, healing or should I pray to Jesus that, you know, he'll allow me to meet the, um, the mate that I've always, you know, been praying about. Should I pray to God about that? You know, what, how do you kind of, is there, is, is, I guess, is that um, one of the same, it doesn't matter, or is it sort of a order of operation that you might advise somebody on? Yeah, well, you know, the disciples uh, wanted to know how to pray. Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, which says, Our Father, who is in heaven. Um, I think kind of the, the default is to pray to God as Father. In my own praying, I often say, Father in heaven. You know, it's kind of a short, short form of what Jesus taught there. Um, yeah, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, uh, you're right. I mean, we can formulate it in a way that's faithful to what's revealed in scripture, but we don't comprehend it. No, we, we don't come close to getting our minds wrapped around it, even what, though we can formulate it theologically in a way that reflects what we see in scripture. Uh, there are three persons, one God. And because there's one God, we're praying to that one God. And typically I will pray father in heaven, you know, I'm going to pray however I pray, but I will sometimes address Jesus, uh, especially, you know, with things I say, Lord, you know, you were in this world, you know what it's like to, to deal with this, whatever it might be, um, or the Holy spirit, you know, I might pray, uh, you know, spirit of God, help me. You know, I often pray this going into the pulpit to preach spirit of God, help me to preach. Spirit, please attend with your power, uh, the preaching of your word to the, to the salvation of souls and building up of your people in your church. I guess the formula is we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that, that Jesus or, or, the, or the Spirit uh, would be offended if we address them directly and not the Father directly. It's all, all three are one God. We're still praying one God. But it is true. We come to the Father through Jesus, that is his merit, his work. And we come by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to us and the Father sent to us to be with us and to prompt us in our praying. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's wrong to pray to Jesus directly or pray to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that, that, I think that's a good foundation a lot of times for people to think about, because I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of 15 year olds and even, you know, whatever, trying to figure that out that, that are fairly new believers. And they're like, how do I even go about this? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's quite easy to overthink prayer. Yeah. Prayer is, is conversing with God. You know, we speak to him and it's important to do that. I think with the word, you know, with the Bible too, because that's where God speaks to us. That's where he reveals himself to us. But it is, it is very easy to overthink prayer, to make it, to make it complicated or, uh, or difficult. Whereas, you know, prayer is, is talking to God. We, we talk to people all the time. We talk to ourselves maybe, but uh, prayer is just talking to, to God. 
Well, um, to wrap it up here, because we don't have time to go through these AW Pink <laughs> topics okay. of uh, chapters, but I'll go through them. Um, and then after I go through them, if you want to touch on maybe one or two of them, that might be a good idea. Um, let's see. So in this chap, in this book, A.W. Pink, he goes through 19 chapters of Attributes of God. Yeah. And I'll just read down through them. We have the solitariness, if I say that correctly, solitariness, uh, the solitariness of God, the degrees of God, the knowledge, foreknowledge, supremacy, sovereignty, uh, immutability, holiness, power, faithfulness, goodness, patience, grace, mercy, loving kindness, love of God, love of God to us, wrath of God, and the contemplation of God. So that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I said, and, it's, and it's amazing that it's still a fairly thin book. Right. <laughs> um, it's concise. Gets all that in. Maybe we'll close on this one. Um, we, maybe we could do a part two one day when we come back. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll dig into these a little bit more, maybe do an entire hour. But um, how about we just talk a little bit? Cause this is, you know, um, this is a big one, I guess, to address just because to me it speaks to how we should realize that God is God. And unlike the devil's lies, we are not like God and we are not a God. Um, so I think it might be good to ju just address what the holiness of God means and how we should um, think about it in our lives. Sure. Well, the holiness of God uh, is kind of, I've heard it described as kind of the umbrella quality that every other attribute of God is permeated by his holiness. His holiness is his, his you could say in his basic sense, his, his set-apartness. He's the creator, we are creatures, and there's a distinction there. We often think of holiness in terms of his sinlessness, his moral purity, which he certainly is. The apostle John wrote, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Um, Habakkuk, the, the Old Testament prophet, wrote of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Now, all of those point to God's holiness. Of course, Isaiah 6, the angels in the very presence of God calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, but holiness is, is and I think J.R. Packer in his book, Knowing God, makes this point, which is another great book on the person of God, um, that his holiness permeates everything. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His wrath is a holy wrath. His patience is a holy patience. It's kind of the, the, uh, the meta attribute that, that, that in, envelops all the other attributes of God. And, and maybe you could say his defining attribute is his holiness. In fact, some might even use the word attribute to it, to apply to it. Um, yeah, as you're going through the list, his immutability is a difficult one, fascinating that he doesn't change at all that that means. Um, you know, being perfect, he can't improve. Uh, and being perfect, he will not become less than perfect. There's a lot that goes, I, re I read a book some year, uh, about a year or two ago on his immutability. Uh, but yeah, holiness is kind of the defining uh, quality of God. Okay, well, um... I think that um, we will do that whenever you have convenient time again. Um, maybe we'll come back and we'll address a lot more of these because I think that's just sure. worth it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Um, Alan, I appreciate you coming on today. And um, 
you know, maybe you know, let me let me ask you one more question while I'm thinking about sure. it. Going back to Christmas, back to our beginning subject. Right. Um, this is something me and my wife talked about as well, and I'm sure a lot of Christians you've dealt with in the past. This sort of the wrestling between how do you deal with, you know, I, I personally grew up just thinking of it as, you know, it's just Santa Claus, the fun, yeah. the, just the fun character that's kind of like a cartoon character and don't really take it serious. That's how I personally have always viewed it. But how do you talk to people that are like Christians and they're like, I am not telling my kids about Santa Claus or I'm going to tell them right away. He's ne they're never going to think that he's a, you know, some mystical man that goes to every house every night. Da, da, da. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good question and a hard one. I mean, a very real world one when you have children and, and what to do as a believer. Growing up, we grew up with Santa Claus when I grew up. And I remember, you know, at some point realizing that uh, Santa actually was not getting it done on Christmas Eve. And thinking, <laughs> I've got to get all those gifts, you know, and horrified at the perceived workload. With our children growing up, we... Um, we didn't really push Santa. I mean, we talk about it, but but not as a reality. And our children would just ask, is Santa Claus real? And I remember my wife answered. She said, uh, do you like to pretend? They said, yes. She said, so do I. That's a good one. That. Now, the irony is, that's kind of how we approached it with our kids. The irony is, our son had a friend here in the church who said he saw some shadow on Christmas Eve and he thinks Santa Claus was in the house. Huh. So our son thought we were holding out on him that Santa did exist and we weren't telling him because his friend saw him or at least saw his shadows. <laughs> um, but we enjoyed pretending. But I guess our, our biggest issue was that was, you know, we didn't want to turn around when, when, when Santa Claus proved not to be real. And then have our children think, well, you know, they told me about Jesus and is he real? and not to confuse those two. Um, mm. So that that was our concern and, and how we approached it. Uh, we, we didn't, you know, ban mentioning Santa Claus or talking about Santa Claus, but we, you know, we would watch, you know, TV shows about him or whatever, but also just kind of, uh, you know, that, that, that Jesus is real. Santa's not, but Jesus is real. And, yeah. you know, there's- I, one, Well, you know, one of the things I do, you know, as they get older, I guess, when they're around the five to 10 year old range, I, I think it's good to educate them about St. Nick, St. Nicholas. And that, yes. it, you know, you can look at Santa Claus as just sort of this pretend figure. And we're sort of honoring his example of giving gifts, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I've never really researched this, but I, I, and it, it sounds like it's true that Santa Claus is a variant of St. Nicholas, St. Mm. Nicholas, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus. Hmm. Um, that even that term Santa Claus is very closely, I think, related to St. Nicholas. Hmm. You see the similarity. Uh, yeah, St. Nicholas, of course, historical figure and uh, worth worth knowing about and teaching those roots to the, the current day figure of Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, very real indeed. Yeah, uh, it's like uh, you get two ends, you know, you get the kind that says, you know, we must adhere to the tradition and then the other kind is like, we need to burn it down. <laughs> it's a happy medium. Yeah, sorry, people. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I, I'm not one of these people that rants about, you know, Christ being taken out of Christmas until a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, Christmas wasn't really a big deal, even in the church, other than kind of Mark and, mm. you know, the liturgical calendar I've, I've heard, and I don't know, this is entirely true, but Charles Dickens, a Christmas Carol, the book really kind of put, 
our modern nostalgic sentimental understanding of Christmas oh, into wow. the popular culture. But uh, as I said, I, I very much enjoy Christmas as a celebration of an opportunity to focus on the, the grace of God and sending Jesus into the world to be our savior. But I also, you know, enjoy the, the cultural celebration of, of Christmas, although it's fairly uh, empty if you don't have the real reason for Christmas, which is Jesus, right. then you, you can enjoy the other. But if the other is all you have, that's pretty empty. And I've sometimes commented uh, in church and sermons on the, the huge buildup for Christmas. You know, soon it will be Christmas Day. Like Christmas Day is going to make everything all right. Whereas, in fact, for Chris, for many people, especially people who lost loved ones, Christmas can be very painful. They miss mm -hmm. a loved one. Uh, no day can bear the hype that the culture puts on Christmas Day. So, I mean, I, I, I worship the Lord. I enjoy Christmas, even culturally, for what it is without expecting too much from it. And, uh, you know, thank God. Thank God for it. And for the fact that the name of Jesus is heard so much around Christmas. Right. You know, even in shopping malls as carols are played, you know, it's an opportunity for the gospel. Yeah, that's true. I, for one, will continue singing Here Comes Santa Claus. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> yeah, that, that one has some questionable lines in it. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I like a lot of the, the just the Christmas songs. Yeah. You know, in the culture. Uh, hard to beat Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra on some of those. So. Right. Uh, all right, Alan. Well, we'll let you go. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have a great day. Thanks.